want to encourage you to open a Bible and turn to John 1. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 13, Lord willing. I want you to follow with me as I read it. John 1, starting at verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, born of God. This is one of the wonderful, some would say, synopsises of the gospel. And this morning as we look into the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're going to note, as John does, first the shockingly bad news. There is really bad news in the beginning of this text. But then we are going to spend time on the shockingly, amazingly marvelous good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that you would give us wisdom this morning as we seek to understand your word. Father, that you would convict our hearts, and Lord, that you would remind us of the greatness of who you are. That you would humble us to, to always know that salvation is found in no one else but you. We do not have the, the creativity or the wisdom or the insight or the willpower in and of ourselves to bring us back to life. It is only you who can breathe life into dry bones. It is only you who can restore us, complete us, and make us whole. It is only you who can take the slave and make them free forever. God, I ask that you would help us to see clearly and be humbled, but also to be so grateful in light of what you have done, who you are, and the power that you have shown and exercised so that we may have faith and may believe. We thank you and we praise you for being present with us, for being our Lord and Savior, for being our Heavenly Father. God, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's step through this section, but we begin with the shockingly bad news. Look at verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. So John begins with this statement, he was in the world. And I love the way that, that John kind of quickly just, just pushes aside all that we often get so excited about around Christmas time. Not because we get excited about it for the wrong reasons, but, but John here, in light of the fact that Matthew and Luke, who have already written their gospel accounts and are well circulated by this point, they have each given details into how Jesus came into the world. There's no reason for John to go over it here. He, he takes that for an assumption. We've, we know how he came into the world. His point here is not to explain how Jesus got here, but instead to stress that when he got here, that he was rejected. 
We didn't climb to him. He slummed to get to us. And still he was turned aside. But even though he came to the sinful world on our behalf, he was not recognized. He was not received. He was not accepted. Look at the rest of the verse. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Now, John, again, makes reference to divine creative activity in the Word, in Jesus. We already noted verse 3 a few weeks ago where it says, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Colossians 1.16. We're also reminded of Jesus where it says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. John does not want us for an instant to forget who he is speaking of, who this Jesus is, this word of God. It is God himself. That Jesus is the divine creator, which is why it's so striking for John that although God himself created them, or in this context, specifically that that Jesus created them, created us, we did not recognize him. Many translators use the word know instead of recognize here. And either is fine, but, but for those of you who have the word know, let me make a quick note. To... To know in this gospel is more than just intellectual knowledge. It also refers to relational knowledge. The same word is used here in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's used in Genesis 4.1 where it originally said that Adam knew his wife Eve and she became pregnant. So please understand that the knowledge that Adam gained of Eve, it was intellectual, but not totally intellectual, right? Otherwise, there's no baby. There was a physical knowledge. There was a physical intimacy and relationship that that was included in that. And so when we lose the word no, we're not just talking about intellectual ideas. I, I, I know who you are. Let me give you a, a little example that 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 I've used throughout my life. Uh, there's, there's a guy that, that I know really well. I, I know his batting average. I know how many home runs he hit. I know how many times he made me really angry because he struck out when we needed him to hit the ball. I know how often uh, he jumped up and down uh, whenever he hit the ball out of Wrigley Field. I know a great deal about Sammy Sosa. But I don't know him. When we use this term to know here in the Gospel of John, it does not mean that kind of intellectual, I know things about him. It's I I know him. I have have relation with him. I I am, this is a a bonding of a a friend or or a spouse or, or a child to a parent. There is there is knowledge that is deeper than just facts, than just pieces of information. 
John the witness or John the Baptist makes this, this same point that his listeners didn't know Jesus. Look at chapter 1, verse 26. John, John says, I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. Now, listen, there were some people around John who knew Jesus. As in, they knew that he had a, a questionable upbringing. Did his, did his mom have an affair? We don't really know exactly what happened there. Was the gossip that people spread around? They may have known his father or known where he grew up or seen him in the synagogues. They, they may have known, <coughs> excuse me, known facts about him, but they did not know him. They did not have relation with him in the sense that they knew him as who he was and interacted with him in that way. They did not have fellowship with him. John, even himself, emphasizes that he didn't even know him. Now, John and Jesus are related, if you recall. John knew Jesus. At least he knew things about him. He would have known about his mom and the, the miraculous account that she gave of her pregnancy. Look at verse 31 in chapter 1. John, my, John says, I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. And then down to verse 33, And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So John, when we're talking about this idea of knowing, we're not talking about just, I, I, yeah, I went to school with that guy. Or, yeah, I, I, I know a few details about them. This is a, we, we have a connection, a, a relational knowledge. He made us, but yet we did not recognize him. They may have seen him, but they did not recognize him. People literally rubbed shoulders with God himself, and yet they never saw him. They did not know him. Look at verse 11. It says, he came to that which was his own. Now, I don't want to get lost in the weeds here, but I know that there are a lot of questions and a lot of debate that's been brought up over, over really this little section. Who, who are his own? Who, who are the ones that he came to? Now, most believe that John is speaking of the nation of Israel here. They would be God's chosen people. If anybody was going to know or receive the Messiah, it would be Israel. They had the prophets. They had the Old Testament text. God had been preparing them for the coming of the Messiah for centuries. And other gospels stressed the point that Jesus came first to Israel and then the gospel was offered beyond them. Paul writes in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Now, although that very well could be true, and if that's the case, then John seems to be making the argument that the best of us, if they didn't see him, why would we, any of us think that we would have? 
But I don't think that's the point that John is making here. I think that John is speaking generally here of just his creation. We are his own because he created us. Without him, we could not live or continue to live. He has just emphasized in the verse before this reality of his creating activity. And I want to show you how the verse before and the verse after this kind of assumes this more universal understanding of who his own were. Look at verse 10 again. It says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Then it said, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, is, is verse 12 speaking of only Israelites? No. To all. There's this universal, to, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name. And verse 10 is speaking of this universal, the world. And so it seems unlikely that he would kind of go universal, specific, and then right back to universal. But either way, the point is clearly that God, through Jesus, came to either the best of us, meaning Israel, the ones who would be most likely to see him, or that he just came to all of us. But no matter which way you lean, the results are the same. As the verse continues, but his own did not receive him. He came and stood in our midst, and he was not received by us. Throughout John, the, the word received doesn't, doesn't simply mean to, to embrace or accept. It also carries with it the idea of when we do not receive, we actively reject. To not receive Jesus is to reject him. Turn to chapter 3, verse 19. In chapter 3, 19, we're told this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Notice the, the, the assumption there and the anticipation is that, that they had light. They, they may have, in a sense, seen light, but they chose. They loved darkness rather than loving light instead of loving than light because they loved their darkness. Paul makes the same basic argument in Romans 1. If you want, you can turn there with me, but he emphasizes this fairly clearly in, in chapter 1, verse 18, where he says, the wrath of God is re being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who, what do they do? Suppress the truth by their wickedness. The rejection of God is not a passive rejection, it is an active rejection. To, to not see or recognize or receive Jesus is not simply to just be unaware. In this gospel, it means, it means to willingly turn aside. If the best of us, if the most religious, if those closest to God, the people of Israel, did not receive him, my friends, what hope was there for you and me? For both Jew and Gentile alike, turned aside. 
The creator saw this rejection eye to eye. This is the reality of sin. Scripture tells us that in our sin we are blind. We are enslaved. We, are, we cannot understand. We are dead in our sin. Jesus came to his own. He came to his creation. He came to those whom he had made, who he gave life to, who he sustains. And yet, we did not see him. We did not receive him. We did not recognize him. Why? Because we love darkness. We love our sin. This is the reality of the fallen nature. And so we reject him. This is our state apart from Jesus. This is the shockingly bad news of all people apart from Christ. That even if he were to come and knock on your door, whether it be your, your, your literal door of your house or whether it be in your heart, Without a working of God, you would not see, you would not recognize, you would not receive His Son. It's worth noting that there is no reason, no reason that we had in and of ourselves for this story to continue in a positive way. He's just told us that the Creator God, in love, came here came to this earth and was face to face rejected by his own people, his own creation, because they loved their sin instead of loving him. And the only reason that this story continues without divine, eternal, and universal punishment for the rejection of God himself because of the great grace and love of God. Because of Jesus, there is shockingly good news on the flip side of our stubbornness and our sin. Because Jesus is the good news. Let's turn now and spend a few moments looking at this good news in verses 12 and 13. Verse 12, it says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, I love the way that John turns from this darkness of, of his own did not even receive him. We rejected him. We did not get it. The apostle John didn't even know who he was. The only way he figured it out is because God told him, when you see the Spirit descending on him, that's the guy. It's the only way John was able to figure it out. Because of God's special work. Although we reject him, yet still there was some who received him. But that should bring up the question in our minds of how? Now the next two verses here, John explains this good news of the gospel. And he does two things here for us. He tells us first the means by which people are saved. And then he tells us the power by which people are saved. First, let's look at the means. 
God has sovereignly made a way for people to be saved from their sin, for the blind to be able to see, for the, for the mute to be able to, sme- to speak, for the dead to be able to live. Notice what he says, yet to all who did receive him. Now at this point, this statement is amazing. If his own did not receive him, John's readers would anticipate, well, then no one would. But despite our rejection of him, grace abounded. And by grace, some still received him. Makes me think of verse 16 later in this chapter where it says, Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. It says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed, As it's used throughout this book, to receive is the same. It's a synonym of to believe. It means more than just to know some facts or to believe that Jesus is a good man. To believe means to fully submit, to fully receive, to fully trust, to fully believe in Jesus. Let me try to make this point in a way that maybe will be helpful. Pulpit's heavier than it needs to be. Or I'm weaker than I should be. All right. Stool. There's two important things that we have to acknowledge and affirm. The first, for us to understand the picture of what belief looks like with this stool, I have to first affirm that I need to be held up. That in some way, shape, or form, because of something, I can't stay up or be held up on my own. I need something else to do it for me. Second, to be able to understand belief through this stool, we also need to believe that this stool can hold us up, can hold me up, for example. So the question is, what does belief then look like? Some people have this this mentality that This is kind of what belief looks like. For for some people, it's more like this. You're really uneasy. You want to stay close to the ground. For other people, they're they're two things. They, They want this, but they want this too, just in case. I was going to have Michael come up and do these illustrations for me, and I forgot to ask him. What about this? Some people try to do this. They try to affirm it and hold on to it, right? I know I'm going to need a stool, and I I believe that this stool can hold me. I believe that, that I need Jesus. I believe that. So I'll take that belief with me. But that doesn't hold us up, right? That still assumes that we are ultimately necessary to hold us up. So the only way in which belief is truly exhibited is when I am totally on the stool. Holding on to nothing else and trusting alone in this stool to hold me up. That is the only true picture of belief. Belief does not mean this. 
It does not mean hovering over the stool just in case I need it for a quick emergency. It means putting all else aside and putting all of my weight resting fully on my belief that I need to be held up and that this stool can do it. That's the only gospel scriptural picture of belief that we get. Now, in light of that, notice that John makes it abundantly clear that there is but one place in which we can put our trust. He doesn't say it's trust as an abstract concept that we need to grab onto. There's only one chair in this illustration that can hold us up. He says, to those who believed in his name. Now, let, let's make sure that we're, we're totally clear on this. John is not saying that the name Jesus is a spell that we can use to get whatever we want. Jesus and his power are his and his alone. Neither you nor I can manipulate him into doing anything for us. To illustrate this point, I, I want to encourage you to turn to Acts 19. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It, it always makes me laugh, and I just enjoy that. In Acts 19, verse 13, we have someone trying to do this and thinking, you know what, the name Jesus has power in and of itself. So as long as I hold to the name of Jesus, as long as I pick it up, I can throw it at someone and use it for victory. Listen to this. In Acts 19, starting at verse 13, it says this. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, and I love that last name, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, the seven of them, and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. I just love that story. Friends, people try to use the name of Jesus the same way today. In the name of Jesus that, that the pastor or that the people of those church or that my grandparents believe in, please help me not to get into a car accident or help me, help me to, to cure me of this disease or whatever we ask of him, thinking of him more like a genie than we do like a god. Like with the chair, to believe on the name of Jesus means to trust in him to save you, to hold you up. To be the Lamb of God who takes away your sins so that you may serve the Lord with love and obedience. To believe in Jesus means to let go of everything else. Your good works, your good intentions, your great desires, your evil, wicked sins, all of it. And to trust in Jesus alone to hold you up. This is the only picture of belief really in Scripture. You must believe in him. 
To believe in Jesus doesn't mean to believe that he is a savior or to believe that he is the savior. He must be your savior. You must sit in the chair. You must actively believe to be saved. The core of the gospel is about who you know. Do you know Jesus? Have you recognized him by the grace of God as your Lord and Savior? For to believe in him is the only means of salvation that God has offered to mankind. Look at the rest of the verse. It says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now again, we need to know what John is not saying here. He is not saying that Jesus gave those who believe the right of whether or not they want to become a child of God. Whether or not they want to be or not be saved. That is not the point. As Calvin said, to read free will here is like getting fire out of water. For the following verse makes it abundantly clear that our salvation is the work of God and not ultimately determined by, as it says, the will of man. The Greek word translated right here does not mean power as it's used in the King James Version. That is not what that word means. The word literally means authority. Listen to what Jesus said about his authority in John 17, too. For you granted him authority over all things that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. It's the same word that Pilate uses later where he tries to claim that I have authority to put you to death. And Jesus says, well, you wouldn't have anything if God hadn't given it to you. John's point is to stress the blessings that come to all those who believe in Jesus. Not only are we forgiven, but we are also adopted into the family of God. Which is something that we didn't, he didn't have to do. God did not have to adopt us. He could have forgiven us and then said, now you're on your own. For the rest of, this, for the rest of your life, you live a pure life on your own. Or he could have come in and said, you know what? I'm going to forgive you your sins, and then now I'm going to make you a slave of mine in the kingdom of God. Nope. He gave us grace upon grace. And not only did he forgive us, but he adopted us into his family. And all of this is done through the divinely ordained means of believing in Jesus Christ. Now, it's also worth noting that the, the King James has also mistranslated the Greek word techna as sons. It says the right to become sons of God. That, that's not what that word means either. The word for son in the Greek is hilios. And this word is reserved in this gospel for Jesus alone. Remember, John is trying to emphasize the divinity of Jesus. And so in John, he only calls Jesus the Son of God. The word tekna means child or children. He gave us the right to become children of God. And John here, with using those, that, those terminologies, is trying to make sure we understand that doesn't mean we become just like Jesus. 
It doesn't mean we become as valuable as Jesus. He is still the firstborn. He is still the head of the body. Oh, but friends, we are made children of God. Here in verse 11, or I should say in verse 12, we are told the divine means by which we are saved. Belief in Jesus alone. This is the one and only way that people may enjoy the forgiveness, grace, and love of God. Belief. To rest ourselves fully upon Jesus alone to hold us up. Take us through life. Deal with our sin. And to take us into eternity. Sit upon him and him alone. Look at verse 13. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Now John explains the power by which we are saved. He's already told us the means. The means are believe. And we are all commanded and called to believe upon the Son of God. Each and every one of us are responsible to believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. But the power of such belief, where does that come from? Who ultimately is to be praised for this miracle? Us or him? Is it ultimately dependent upon me or upon And before we dive into this verse in more detail, let me remind you that although John makes it clear that God is sovereign in our salvation, as we discussed earlier, this does not mean that we are not responsible to believe. There are two tracks running throughout this gospel, remember? The sovereignty of God in our salvation and the free offer of the gospel, which demands human responsibility. These two tracks, John explicitly states each of them abundantly throughout this book. He never tells us exactly how they work together. He just tells us that they're true. So friends, we must submit to the clear teaching of Scripture and not throw one out because we don't get it or we don't understand. The children of God are not born as are the children of men. The means or the power of the new birth of the children of God is belief in Jesus as Lord and Savior. But the power of that new birth is God's and God's alone. It's not mine. It's not in you. It's not in me. It's in him alone. John has already emphasized earlier that in Jesus was life. He himself is al alone possesses life. We don't. To explain this, John first lists three powers that are not responsible for our belief and adoption. First, John says, children born not of natural descent. Literally, the text reads, those born not of bloods, plural. Some say that John is thinking of the virgin birth here. The problem with that thought is that there's no reason for bloods to be plural if John is thinking of the virgin birth. Because 
Joseph's blood was not involved. It was only Mary's, right? The plurality of using this term bloods emphasizes the reality that, that John is not speaking of the virgin birth. And in fact, there's no textual evidence to speak of to assume that John is thinking that way. John seems to, to emphasize blood in the plural here, to, to emphasize not just by saying, you know what, you're, you're not saved by your own blood. He, he makes it plural to emphasize it's not just that you're not saved because of your parents, but you're also not saved because of their parents or their parents' parents or their parents' parents' parents. And he keeps going back with this emphasis of it doesn't matter who you connect yourself to. It doesn't matter if you can trace yourself back to a great king of Israel or to a great prophet or to a great man or woman of God. John seems to emphasize in reality this, 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 this truth that we are not saved because of our heritage. Many in Rome as well as in Israel emphasize the importance of who they were related to to identify their worth and their value in their current culture. The people of Israel would trace back generation after generation for their tribe and their clan. Part of that would determine their rights in the temple. It would determine their rights to property. It determined a great deal of information. All that came down through their bloodline. But not this. Not the salvation that Jesus offers. The life that he offers does not come through blood. No matter who we can trace ourselves to, even if we were to trace ourselves back to Adam himself, it matters not. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if our parents or great-grandparents might have been great men and women of God, that cannot change us. That cannot change our heart. That cannot, using Jeremiah's terminology of the new covenant, that cannot take a heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. John continues and says, nor of human decision. Most literally, this phrase translated as, nor of the will of the flesh. John is pointing to human choice here. In other words, our best efforts, our best laid plans cannot bring about the new birth. We cannot will it into beginning. Which is connected to John's last phrase. The last phrase that doesn't have the power to save us is human will. The term will literally means desire. So not only are our best laid plans not sufficient to enable us to receive Jesus, but even our best intentions, our greatest desires and passions are not enough. So if we cannot gain salvation because of our family or our heritage, if we cannot gain God's favor by willpower or by choice or by desire, then by what power can we possibly be saved? Praise God that John not only wrote to us of our lack, but he also wrote to us of God's abundance. For we are not saved 
We do not become children of God. We do not receive Jesus because of natural descent, nor of human decision or a human's will, but we are born of God. What power can bring about belief? What power can make the slave free and the dead alive? Nothing but the power of God. For all those who receive the light, who believe in Jesus, are born not of men, not of will, not of desire, but of God. It is by grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Praise God for his grace. Friends, praise God for his love. Praise God for his power so that all who would turn to him for their sins and believe in Jesus may be born again, may be born of God. This is the shockingly good news of the gospel. That when we were impotent, when we had not the power or the will or the desire, he brought in us newness of life so that we would see our sin for what it is see Jesus for who he is and turn and believe and be saved. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the power of God. Oh, what comfort there is and should be in our lives when we consider the power of God that leads to salvation. Friends, our saving, although we must sit in the chair, ultimately the ability to sit comes from him. He is the one who holds us up. He is the one who gives us the faith. Apostle Paul makes the same argument, upholding the same realities, the sovereignty and power of God, and yet his responsibility Speaking of the other apostles in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but Christ who is within me. Human responsibility and sovereignty of God. The question I would ask you this morning is, who are you sitting on? We've all placed our faith in something. There is no passive activity. We've all chosen something to rest on, to hold us up, because we all know we need it. Friends, far too many are now resting in the chair, resting in Christ alone. And instead, they're trying to hold him and carry him with them, or they're trying to hold to him and something else. they're just not fully committed and they're making sure that they're sort of on him but they got both feet ready to run if he doesn't give them what they want friends Jesus and Jesus alone is the only thing that can hold us up and it's by his power alone that we can be saved and so I implore you and I call you that if you find yourself trusting in something else 
to turn and believe. Trust in his power to see you through and give you the wisdom. Turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will be saved. And for those of you who are sitting on the chair, let me ask you, are you firmly planted there? Or in immaturity or foolishness, are you still, still reaching out for other things? Trying to find comfort and security in something else? Or are you resting faithfully in the God who created all things, who willingly came here, lived, called, died, and redeemed you so that you could be his? living the joy of your salvation. If not, then I would challenge you to consider whether or not you truly know Jesus. Let me pray. God, I ask that you would give us great wisdom to investigate our own hearts to see if we have failed the test. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see and, and recognize in truth the reality that we are saved by your grace alone. God, I pray that you would, <coughs> that you would help us each to examine our hearts to see whether or not we have believed, to see whether or not we are trusting in Jesus alone. And I pray that you would help us this morning for all those who have believed to be reminded of the stability of Christ that he is our shelter, that he is our comfort, that he is our strong tower, that if we are seated upon him, then we are safe. And just like the, the disciples, when, when they were in the boat with Jesus and the storm was raging against them, there may be times when we get scared, but so long as we are dependent upon him and with him, then we are safe. God, encourage our faith with these things help us to trust more fully in our one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.